Serdrain Recitation Response. This is The Story of O by John Copley, Life and the Evolution of Earth's Atmosphere by Casting Seifert, 2002, and Out of Thin Air, Alan Martin, 2007. I'm gonna kind of mush them all together because I think that Out of Thin Air has like the culminating point that I wanted to end up with. Um, and the others provide a wonderful kind of backup uh, logical progression for the culminating point. So my plan is to do kind of a review of all three and then at the end do like the sum up uh, of some of the comments and some of the um, main purposes of what I think the, the articles provide value for. So our first article. The key question was, if cyanobacteria existed for at least a billion years before HiO2 levels, what happened? And the best evidence to talk about that actually comes from why we care about microorganisms so much. And that's because of O2, right? So cyanobacteria created this O2, he invented photosynthesis. The play between terrestrial and marine photosynthesis is one of the main reasons why we even have an atmosphere, right? So I thought that was really interesting that the terrestrial ecosystem is based on a series of, of O2 production, but counterbalanced by the decay and the respiration of CO2. So you don't get a lot of net benefit. But the marine primary producers are the ones that seem to like leak, right? That was the quote used. They leak this O2 waste product into the atmosphere because they don't necessarily have the same respiration requirements that a terrestrial unit would. So these little unicellular organisms like diatoms and coccolithophorids make up 99% of marine photosynthesis primary production. And we saw that in SNIL, right? And these prokaryotic critters also fix nitrogen. So you've got two major processes here. The first, producing oxygen, and then the second, fixing nitrogen. And these are usually non-compatible. Like when we think about this in wastewater treatment, for example, you can have your nitrogen fixers, but it has to be done in the presence of oxygen. And then if you switch to an anaerobic producer, right, it'll produce a nitrate, but if you want to fix it, you have to switch it into an anaerobic component to generate that N2. Um, the, so there's two separate processes in wastewater at least, right? And so I, I kind of like that parallel here where you have, you have your marine producers who are able to fix and you have your soil producers who are able to fix nitrogen, but the cyanobacteria in terrestrial organisms seem to have a decay and reuse cycle that's more equivalent to our aerobic components in wastewater treatment versus the anaerobic components that seem to behave more like our marine producers in the fixation of nitrogen and the production of oxygen. Even though that's a, even though our wastewater producers don't produce oxygen, they just produce elemental N2. But anyway, I thought that was an interesting parallel that you could see in, in the wastewater production because it is a marine ecosystem versus terrestrial. Um, but they do this all in the same bodies, right? So you have these little bodies that are just creating oxygen and fixing nitrogen all at the same time in these marine environments. And it's very difficult because the N2 nitrogenase is actually poisoned by the O2 that the photosynthetic process is producing. So this waste product could poison it. 
So as a result, they have these complicated metabolisms with a high level of specificity and diversity. So they're using like different photosystems at different times under very specific biological reactions to do things unusual in their environment. So that's a big deal. It's a very big deal. So they can produce O2 aerobically or anaerobically. These are the marine producers. Um, and all over plants and algaes get their photosynthetic uh, processes through endosymbiosis, right? So the plants and the algae didn't invent photosynthesis. There's not spontaneous arisal of this process amongst the terrestrial organisms that, or the marine organisms. You have this same process, the photosystem one, photosystem two, in everything. They come from the same general like pattern, right? So, and well, and I don't want to say that lineage because we're going to talk about the lineages diverge. And so I wanted to say they, that everyone has this photosystem one, photosystem two setup, but they use it in different ways. And but it always looks the same, which is really interesting. So this is amazing, right? This is a magical form of energy energy production that seems to be have mastered only once. So one species seems to have, seems to have figured out how to do this, either photosystem one and photosystem two, and then they use lateral gene transfer to get this system working on Earth to to transfer those evolutionary advantages through lateral gene transfer, and then that package just seems to get passed down over and over and over again without spontaneous arrival arisal. So the O2 question also seems to coincide with glaciation and snowball earth, right? So you have all this waste product O2 that then kills off the majority of life. So maybe one of the reasons why this package keeps getting passed down is because of that bottleneck effect from evolution, where if you kill off everything, then you know, you're gonna reduce your diversity to a single survivable line. And that's interesting because the, the survivable line may have grown up on an early earth, which is a lot like Saturn's moon Titan from an atmospheric composition point of view. So if we see this as evidence that atmospheric evolution is mostly governed by microbial populations, which is what this particular paper was arguing for, then it really brings up the question, well, what might be waiting for us on Titus, Enceladus, and even here on Earth, right? So, so that leads us into this next step. Let's talk about oxygen and cyanobacteria. So here you've got cyanobacteria have produced this waste product. We've led to the glaciation of Earth. All kinds of things have happened. But it seems to be a big gap between when cyanobacteria, at least terrestrial cyanobacteria, started producing, well, started existing, versus when they started producing oxygen. So there's this couple billion year gap. Even though the models that a couple of the people will talk about here seem to show that within 30 million years of developing this evolutionary advantage uh, that, that we should have seen these high oxygen levels. So where, where did it go? There are a couple options. The first was saying that something else is consuming O2. And we see a couple major players here. So we'll tell it like a story. So you've got the players, you've got Omoto, and then you've got Casting and Holland, kind of each arguing for a different play. The Omoto play is that, of course, when cyanobacteria arose, they brought with it oxygen, and just a whole bunch of other stuff happened to consume it. So you have organic acids that could consume it. You have um, examples of like banded iron formations that can exist in, in um, aerobic conditions. Uh, you have 
Omoto was using Canfield's evidence showing that there was a sulfate-devouring microorganism population about 3.5 billion years ago. So I mean, he's saying that that is an example of how we could have ended up with a couple billion year gap between when cyanobacteria arose and when we actually start seeing these high O2 levels. But Canfield's not convinced, like his own model, model being used for this evidence is kind of a no-go. Um, so the other side of the house says, look, all the evidence that we can know and trust says that oxygen didn't start being produced until 2.3 billion years ago. There's no way. It had to be low O2. So we hear you, Omoto. That's cool. We understand that, that uh, you're convinced that there was this huge uptake of oxygen through other chemical or biological processes, but frankly, we don't... We don't buy it, right? Our evidence is pyrite, uranite not being soluble. They wouldn't be able to exist in an unaltered form if a high CO2, a high O2 level was present. But we see the exact opposite of that. Um, banded iron formations, again, they say that most of the banded iron formations would not be able to exist in a high O2 environment. And in fact, that's what we see. They talk about mass-dependent fractionation. So living things tend to sequester lighter isotopes. Uh, in a not fully understood way, but this is mostly applicable to sulfur compounds and how sulfur interacts with oxygen um, through like driven by UV light and oxygen plus UV results in ozone. So you've got some complex chemistry happening here. So the, the mass fractionation seems to stop about 2.45 billion years ago. Okay, well that's a lot closer to 2.3 than it is to 3.45, right? So so they're laying out this idea that, like, yes, there are many chemical processes that could have withdrawn what oxygen was being produced from the atmosphere very quickly, but all of the stuff we see seems to argue that that only, that there was no major increase until 2.33 to 2.45 billion years ago. That's when we see our high O2. So Casting and Holland say, we, we hear you, Omoto, and there definitely could be something pulling that oxygen out of the atmosphere. Uh, we think it's volcanoes. So they said that uh, they were thinking that it would be a change in composition of gases around 2.7 billion years ago, which would then have resulted in this big pole um, and would require a reducing mantle of iron silicates. But again, none of that is like... It has a lot of evidence. So so there's a there's a big split here between cyanobacteria form and we should have seen high O2 levels basically immediately within 30 million years of, of cyanobacteria existing. But instead we have to wait a couple billion years until it, it happens. Okay, so did a volcano explode? Did our iron silicon mantle change composition, which would allow these sulfur-reducing bacteria to propagate in the oceans? Did we have organic acids being produced? Like, there's still a big question about what happened in that giant gap. So right now, the evidence all looks like low O2. And in order to support that low O2 model, you have to have something interacting with it. Right? So both authors, both uh, players, Teams seem to be kind of agreed that there was something else going on there, but but there's still not a huge amount of evidence to support that. Regardless, um, high O2 can definitely be kind of placed around 2.33 billion years ago, and it also coincides almost directly with Snowball Earth. 
So obviously when O2 showed up, methane got removed, and now you have this big snowball earth um, mass kill-off of all these species. Now why is that interesting? Okay, so all of that is kind of the lead up to the main point that I, I wanted to get out of this. So making oxygen is really, really difficult. And so far, again, we've only seen it arise in, in basically one family of bacteria. That's it. In the entire family tree of Earth, there's been, there's been one group of creatures that can do this. And they all do it in exactly the same way. There's not a huge amount of diversity in how cyanobacteria provide photosynthetic services, right? They all do it kind of in the same way. They use the same systems. They may use those systems in slightly different ways, but they kind of all come with that package plant deal, regardless of how they use it. And that's really interesting. So two heavy lifting molecular machines that we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about photosystem one and photosystem two. You add some chlorophyll and then sunlight becomes sugar, unstable electrical currency, and that the plant animal thing can use, can use that. So cyanobacteria seem to develop the snack 2.3 billion years ago. We've identified that. Um, but that photosystem one and photosystem two are present in everything. So sometimes they use it aerobically, sometimes they use it anaerobically, sometimes they use mostly photosystem two, sometimes they use mostly photosystem one. It's like the two systems are mutually compatible, but exclusionary, but they're on the same range of function. And the, the organism just seems to kind of fall into one of those two ranges. But this is interesting. So the quote from Out of Thin Air said, no tree of bacterial life can readily account for the observed distributions of the two sets of photosystem genes among the species. That's really interesting to me. So the main thing that I got out of it that I wanted to talk about was, so wouldn't that be evidence for a second generation that we were talking about in the first part with the McKay paper, right? I mean, wouldn't that be a really good evidence for alien life on Earth? So this, this photosystem one, photosystem two, it is entirely possible, for example, that photosystem one arose on Earth, that that was a, a an arising condition from an evolutionary perspective. Cool. And maybe that was the original arising of cyanobacteria. But this other one, photosystem two, similar but very different and unaccountable in our current lineage, well, wouldn't that be a great place to research, you know, the idea of panspermia or alien life? Because if they're two completely different systems that are mutually incompatible, they got packaged up together in, in what the authors will call a um, proto, an oxygenic phototroph that flip-flops between type 1 and type 2, this proto-cyanobacteria, this flip-flopper. So if it got packaged up by a new form of life that essentially had to use lateral gene transfers to convert two trees of life, well, isn't that exactly what we were looking for for alien life with McKay? So some think that that originator genes arose in a now extinct species of anoxygenic bacteria and then hopped to another species to create that diversity. Great. 
I mean, that's exactly what you would expect, right? Two trees of life, one alien, one terrestrial, or one what we expect. And the only way they could interbreed would be to create this proto-cyanobacteria that would then become the new basis of energy production and life on Earth. Because something arose only once. It can't be replicated, but it's responsible for most of life on Earth. I mean, that, that sounds like what we were looking for for alien life, right? Um, and since it's never arisen again, since it's never been been synthesized, right? We don't understand the physical mechanisms that create it. Uh, it, it really seems to argue that maybe this this is alien. So we're all kind of alien species. We eat alien species. We interact with alien species all the time. Two separate trees of life. But um, the authors of the paper don't don't really go there for obvious reasons. The authors talk about the evolution of the photosystems too to split the manganese, manganese calcium cluster, and they talk a lot about what manganese makes, why manganese is special, and why it's the only water splitting mineral that we know of. And they talk about that interaction with UV light. Um, and again, like that's that's interesting because manganese is not ter a terribly common element on Earth, right? But maybe that could be different. That could have been governing the evolution of this genetic diversity under different environmental conditions, which when spread to Earth would mean that it would need a compatible translator. It would need a photosystem one to be able to exist on Earth again. So then you have this idea of, you know, spontaneous generation of lateral gene transfer and a new package plant that then gets passed down to all life. So the authors, though, say that the hunt is on for an Earth-based proto-cyanobacterial lineage, lineage that possesses and expresses two photosystems, but only one at a time, which may be adapted to the present environment, but would be the key to the ancestral environment. And that's where we go back to it would have to be an anoxygenic phototroph that flip-flopped between type 1 and type 2, and that's never been found before. The authors think it will, but but I don't know. It got my imagination kind of fired up about it wouldn't, it wouldn't be earthly. It would be alien, and that's why we haven't found it, is because it's not, it's not here. So I, I did... I don't know if that's what we were supposed to get out of the paper, but it did really interests me to think about, you know, if we're looking at the definition of alien life and if we're looking at the definition of what life is, well, one of our main components for that definition was the production of metabolic energy, which in our case has to be done through the consumption of creatures that are primary producers because we don't have that ability, right? And the primary producers themselves seem to be made up of two incompatible production methods that have been symbiotically joined through lateral gene transfer that's never been repeated. So it would almost argue that the photosynthetic producers are alien life and we have to eat alien life to be able to survive, right? That the terrestrial earth is in fact based on this photosystem too, um, alien. 
that somehow managed to combine with maybe a spontaneously arising cyanobacteria on Earth to create this actual existence that we have in modern day. So a possible reason why it took a couple billion years for cyanobacteria to be producing all that oxygen was because, in fact, if you only had photosystem one, which was, let's just assume photosystem one is a terrestrial adaptation for photosynthesis, well, it only works under very, very limited circumstances. And the same for photosystem two. It's only the combination of those two that allow for success, at least on the, the Earth environment. So it would make sense, potentially, that the hole between when cyanobacteria supposedly arose um, and when our high O2 levels arose, well, there would, that would be plenty of time to evolve this package plant energy production that could then go on to create life as we know it. And especially because if it became successful enough if it was immediately followed by that glaciation bottlenecking evolutionary catastrophe, well, then that would self-select to destroy all species that may have only had that photosystem one. So the only successful adaptation would be the combination of the alien, right, quote-unquote alien photosystem two life with the photosystem one life. And thus you have the earth production based on that original combination of of alien molecular machinery. So that's what I want to talk about because I got really interested in that, but I, I somehow don't think that that was what the authors of the paper were going for. <laughs>